You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Uh, today's an intro. Uh, Mike's going to come and uh, speak to us about Jesus in a political age. If you want to get your Bibles ready, uh, we're going to have Sharice come and read to us from Mark chapter 12, verse 13 to 17. And then Mike will come and uh, yeah, he'll kick us off into this series. Why don't you turn to your Bibles? Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this, he asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through it. And thank you that your word is timeless and speaks truth today. Uh, to whatever issues that our world are wrestling with. Lord, I pray this morning, uh, be with us as we think about this series, as we set things up. Uh, I pray that you would speak through your word, you would challenge our hearts and make us more like Jesus. Help, us to be, help, my, help myself to be clear, faithful and helpful. And above all, would you get the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, January 20th. 2009 was one of the most memorable days of my life. Why is that? What happened January 20? A worldwide significant event that stopped the world. It was one of those moments that stopped the world. What was it? It was the inauguration of Barack Obama. And I was there. I was there in freezing cold Washington, D.C., in the middle of winter where it barely, I don't think it got above zero degrees. And uh, I got there early because I wanted to kind of get a good spot. And uh, it started about 10, I think, or 11. I got there at 6 a.m. It was still dark. And I was standing around for hours in the blistering cold. And I wasn't prepared. I was, I was wearing like Adidas trainers. And that, that was not a good idea. My feet were like frozen. It felt like I was walking on ice. I remember doing like push-ups and star jumps just to try to keep warm. But on that day, and even then, I knew that you could sense that I was witnessing history. Uh, there was this uh, area called the Mall uh, in Washington, not like a shopping center, just this big strip of grass, kind of like South Bank Parklands, where perhaps up to two million people were packed there to witness this historic event, where Barack Obama, the, the first president of color, was being sworn in uh, to become the leader of the free world, as they say, uh, the most powerful, at least back then, nation on the planet. And um, you know, there was a sense that something significant was going on. How do you know that? Well, when there's sniper rifles, you know something's going on. That's not a normal everyday experience for me. Sniper rifles up in the gallows, security bag checks, cameras everywhere. But there was also a sense of emotion, a sense of hope. Uh, there were people that had grown up uh, during the segregation, you know, civil rights, uh, 
era in the 1960s. Uh, and more recently, under the more, more recent President Bush, the world had changed. Uh, that, that had seen 9-11 happen, which drastically has changed our world, but in particular, America. You know, terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, a global recession was also on the brink of happening. It was a historic day uh, where Barack Obama, a younger man, relatively speaking, in his 40s, um, he, was, he was about to be sworn in. And he'd built his campaign around two phrases. Firstly, hope. And secondly, if you remember, yes, we can. Yes, we can. And on his speech, Obama said this. On this day, we gather because we've chosen hope over fear, unity of purpose over conflict and discord. For everywhere we look, there is work to be done. The state of our economy calls for action, bold and swift, and we will act not only to create new jobs, but to lay a new foundation for growth. We will restore science to its faithful place and wield technology's wonders to raise healthcare's quality and lower its cost. We will harness the sun and the winds and the soil to fuel our cars and run our factories. And we'll transform our schools and colleges and universities to meet the demands of a new age. All this we can do. All this we will do. The crowd erupts. And as the world look on, to, as this man comes in to usher in a new reign, a new beginning, a new era, there was this real sense of hopeful expectation that real change would happen, not just for America, but for the world. Fast forward 14 years. Our world is still asking those questions. Our world is still looking for hope. We have a vision of what the world should look like and how we think we can get there. There's voices on all sides of the political spectrum, and they're getting louder, aren't they? Carl Truman, uh, in his book, um, hard to read, I'm reading at the moment, it's called The Rise and Triumph of Modern Self, but really helpful cultural analysis. He says this, that while earlier generations might have seen damage to the body or property as the most serious categories of crime, a highly psychologized era will accord increasing importance to words as means of oppression. Words are now means of oppression. Words have never been more offensive than in 2022. You know, gone are the, are the, are the days, the era of one-way media, uh, top-down kind of telling you how it is. You can receive or reject that. Now, social media allows us to find our voice, our tribe, perhaps even our echo chamber of people that will agree with us. And so a place where we can stand and hurl insults at those that would dare to differ. What's your hope for the world? What's your vision for a flourishing society? Maybe you lean left. Maybe you like the idea that we're progressing as society. That's where the word progressive comes from. You know, that, that humanity can and should be able to keep progressing forward. There's something beautiful, something attractive about that. And uh, if we're honest, society has come a long way. Uh, according to the World Bank, in the last 100 years, uh, the percentage of people in poverty, 100 years ago, it was three quarters of the world were living in poverty under the global poverty line. Now it's just under 10%. 
That's a remarkable change, proportionally, not in raw numbers, in over the last 100 years. Another thing, in infant mortality, 100 years ago, uh, one in three children would not make their fifth birthday. One in three. Now, globally, it's one in 30. That's a huge change. Maybe you lean right. You want to conserve parts of our culture that are under threat. Maybe it's family values, individual rights, freedoms, and responsibilities. Maybe you say we need less intervention. The government needs to get their paws off our money and off our institutions. We need to allow the market to flourish and entrepreneurship to take place. Perhaps you see an erosion in the society. Things like family and marriage and church have been pushed away from the center, from a place of prominence. And last couple of years with the global pandemic, COVID has created a battleground for the left and the right. You know, some people on the left have been arguing for um, more restrictions, uh, strong mandates, lockdowns. Uh, we need to make sure we get a hold of this thing so society doesn't crumble. So people are kept safe. The, vul- the, vul- the vulnerable and the marginalized are able to live. People on the right, no, arguing, no, actually, we need to take individual responsibility, also citing unintended consequences of mandates and lockdowns. Now, I'm thankful in lots of ways that COVID isn't one of these topics that, uh, that we'll be talking about. But we can see, though, that the battleground, we can see the landscape, we can see the political age that we live in. What we have done is we've researched uh, the top, I think it was top 14 issues that Australians care about. And we ask you, like a good democratic process, we ask you guys to vote. And here's where we've landed on. These will be the issues uh, that you have voted uh, that we'll be, care- we'll be uh, addressing over the next uh, eight or so weeks. Uh, but this morning, uh, we're going to be setting things up. And I want, us, I want us to stop and take a bigger picture view of things. Looking at God's story, uh, we're going to see how, what's God's vision for the world. And we're going to look, secondly, at how Jesus engages politically in our political age. And thirdly, we're going to wrap up with a few principles about how we might think about engaging. So before we look at our political age and any political topic, we need to see what God says. And how do we know what God says? Well, he's revealed it to us in his word. The Bible, it's far more than just a set of rules or some wisdom about how to think on any of these topics. Uh, if, we want, if you want to think about what God says or what God thinks about these topics, um, you need to do far more than just Googling. Uh, what does the Bible say about X, about Y? We, the Bible is a story. It's God's story of salvation. It's God's story of redemption. It's God's story of hope for the world. And so we need to look more than just left and right. We need to look up. We need to look up. Here's the first point, if you're taking notes, that God is the ruler over all ages. God is the ruler over all ages. Let's look up to the stars. See some some lights up there. They sort of look like stars. But in Isaiah 40, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, God says this, Who can you compare me? To whom can you compare me? Look at the stars. I made them. I numbered them by the greatness of my might, And because I'm strong and powerful, not one of them is missing. You know, there's a big star uh, in our galaxy, the Milky Way. It's called 
Canis Majoris. Canis Majoris. Some scientists think it's perhaps the biggest galaxy in the universe, so the biggest star in the universe. There's debate about that, what we know, and there's a lot we don't know about the universe. But literally, it means big dog. Big dog. Like maybe an Aussie name that, you know, hey, what, was, what should we call that star? Big dog. I know, we need to stand smart. What's big dog in Latin? Canis Majoris. That's what we're going to call it. Look how big this star is compared to our sun. I don't know if you can see that. There's our sun. Here's a scale. If the earth was a golf ball, Canis Majoris, so the sun would be like a beach ball, about three meters in diameter. That's a perspective. I kind of, my wingspan's not that big. Um, the golf ball compared to Canis Majoris, kind of big dog, as big as Mount Everest. As big as Mount Everest. Crazy. You could stack golf balls and fill the state of Queensland. That's kind of how big it would be. This crazy, crazy big star. And the Bible says that God made it. And not just made this star, but made the billions of stars that make up our particular galaxy, the Milky Way, which is one of billions of galaxies that make up at least what we know about the universe. And so if you're with us this morning, you might not be sure about God, about the Bible, but one thing is clear. We're not that big. We're not that big of a deal. We're not that important. We're actually quite small. And, uh, and our political conquests and aspirations, what they are really in the grand scheme of time and space, are they really that important? But you know what the Bible also says? That the God who made these galaxies, do you know what the crowning glory of his creation is? The best thing that God made? What's the cherry on top of his multi-tiered cake? Well, come with me, if you have a Bible, to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't own a Bible, if you don't have a Bible that um, you can read, we'd love to give you one. You can see the guys at the info desk on your way out. Come with me to Genesis chapter 1. It should be on about page 3, maybe page 7 if you've got a long intro. Right on the start of your Bible. Uh, and come with me uh, to verse 26. God has been making a whole bunch of stuff. He, he's, he's made all these things and called them good. Um, Things like big dog Canis Majoris, things like creeks and canyons and carrots and cassowaries. How do you know God exists? Look at a cassowary. How else do you explain a cassowary if there's no God making one? It's, I don't understand a cassowary. They're, they're bizarre animals to me, but they're in Queensland, so there you go. Anyway, God's been making these amazing things, calling them good, and yet something's lacking. What is it? Look at verse 26. Then God says, let, said, let, let us... Make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Humans, you and I. We are created in God's image. That's remarkable. And we, as we keep reading Genesis, he says, after creating humans, things are now very good. And here we see God's vision for the world, for humanity, uh, that we would have dominion over the earth. Right here, we see the first political plans for humanity, the first form of government of government is that humans would be in charge. Humans would be the ruling party of the earth. 
Under, of course, God's rule and reign. But keep reading verse 28. What happens? And then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, how is he going to set up government? What's the first commandment in the Bible to establish this government? It's not form a committee. It's not set up a constitution. No, it's man, woman, fill the earth. Get busy, have sex. Literally, like that's what he says. Go and make babies so that you can fill the earth and subdue it. That's God's vision for humanity, to be living freely in relationship with him, but also with each other, looking after, stewarding the creation that God has made. In perfect harmony. But what happens? Well, not long after, uh, in fact, in chapter 3, we see man and woman that they stuff up. They get tempted into taking power for themselves that really belongs to God. This is the first political division recorded in history and happens way back in the Garden of Eden. Satan, uh, the snake, has represented. He's like the, the leader of the opposition. Uh, he's, he's the one that comes from heaven down to earth. He's rebelled against God and he's gone to set his own agenda up against God and his political plan for the world. And so he puts a big spin on God's message. Now, God said, you can eat from any tree of the garden. You can eat freely. You can even eat from the tree of life that will enable you to live forever. That's a pretty good deal. Just don't eat from that one. Otherwise, you'll die. And Satan says to Eve, did God really say you can't eat from any tree? Did God really say you can't eat any of this delicious fruit out there? That's not what he said at all. And Eve, Eve calls him out on that. Uh, then Satan goes again for another spin. He says, you won't die if you eat from the tree. No, you're going to become like God. You're going to be wise. It's going to be good. It's going to be a blessing. You're going to end up more prosperous if you eat this tree. Come on, Eve. It's going to be good. Eve and Adam, they succumb to the temptation. And the fruit, it says, was a delight to their eyes. They're seduced by the, the lust of, the, of this world, the desire for, for power, for wisdom, and ultimately the desire to be like God. They wanted to be above, independent from constraints. They thought that their vision for the world was better than what God had said. This is called a fall in the Bible. What happens? There's a brokenness that severs the relationships with humanity. And there's three in particular that it severs. Firstly, with creation, with the world. Uh, the Bible says that in Genesis 3, the, the world's relationship with, with humans is drastically affected. It, it's going to affect the trajectory of, of humanity, and we're seeing the effects of it today. You know, people can't just hang around in the garden, naked, eating fruit. God says to Adam, now there's a scarcity of resources. There's going to be thorns and thistles that will affect work. Floods, famines, fatalities. By the sweat of your brow, you'll have to work and produce. The relationship with us and the world is broken. Secondly, the relationship with each other is now broken. That horizontal relationship. God says to Eve that you and Adam are now going to be in this power struggle. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve, they were, they were naked, felt no shame. But the first thing they did was cover up. Literally, that they got some fig leaves and they covered up their nakedness. But also they covered up their responsibility as well. They were hiding. 
uh, we see, but also there was a blame shift going on. Um, Eve, Eve blamed the snake and Adam blamed Eve for, for their sin. And so humanity now, ever since then, we've been facing a power struggle. Uh, there's, there's been vulnerabilities that have been exploited in little and big ways throughout history. Despite that God's saying that humanity is all equal in value, in dignity, worthy of respect, we see a culture today that is anything but that. We don't have to look too hard to see people being ridiculed, people who hold a different view to what you're supposed to believe being mocked. Social media, it just makes things on steroids. Keyboard warriors, trolls, hate memes. It's everywhere. Hate. It's the air we breathe. But thirdly, and here's the big one, a relationship with not just each other, but looking up vertically between us and God is broken. God's vision for the world is for him to be living in, with his people. In the garden, we see Adam, Eve, Adam and Eve, they walk with God in the garden. But not, not long after, in the fall, Adam and Eve, they get banished from the presence of God, no longer being able to live out this idyllic, peaceful, flourishing vision that God had for his people to be in his presence, worshipping him under his rule and reign, but looking after the world. And it's not just as though humans are now puppets, uh, that God's just pulling the strings and we have no agency, no responsibility. We're unwilling to live as God would have us. The Bible shows us the condition of our hearts, what it calls sin, that, that we want to rebel, that we think we know better. Uh, over whatever dominion. Maybe it's even just over our wallets, over our time, over our relationships. We don't want God to kind of invade that space. We think we know better. Or maybe it's we're in charge of other people. We want to be telling others what to do so that they can get on board with our vision for the world because we know best. All throughout history, we've seen this desire for power. And the Bible, the Old Testament, is really a story of one failed leader after another, after another. And that's really a story of history. So many failed leaders. And yet 2,000 years ago, someone comes along that's drastically different. A man who is very different to the failed kings, prophets, and priests of the people of God in Israel. A man who would come to fix the brokenness of the world, to bring about redemption and restoration, hope for humanity. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Have a listen to how Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, the great French emperor, describes Jesus in contrast to other rulers. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and I have founded empires. But what did we rest the creations of our genius upon force? Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. So how does Jesus engage in our political age? Well, here's the second point. We've seen God's vision for humanity. What does Jesus have to say about politics? We're going to open up your Bibles to Mark 12, where Sharice read for us. And uh, it comes from one of the, the four biographies of Jesus, the, the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest one. Uh, can I encourage you, if you haven't read this before, if you've never read an account of Jesus as an adult, um, read this this week. It'll take you half an hour, maybe 40 minutes to read. It's action-packed. I reckon it would make a great political drama. 
if it was on Netflix. Uh, better than House of Cards, better than The Blacklist, I've been watching that. Better than, um, what else was I saying, Designated Survivor, uh, especially season three, that was pretty rubbish. Um, if, if you haven't, yeah, come, come chat with me afterwards if you want to vent about what happened there. But, um, but seriously, as we read the Gospel of Mark, we see political tension rising. There's a plot to assassinate Jesus uh, that, that's unfolding. Different groups are trying to take him down. At the same time, crowds of people are following him, some of whom are trying to make him king by force. And yet all throughout, we see Jesus in control. We see him slipping away at times. We see he is on a mission. And Mark 8 makes that clear. He's come to die. That's his mission. Uh, In Mark 12, we enter into the last week of Jesus' life. He's about to die, but he's doing it on his timing on his agenda. So come with me to Mark chapter 12. We'll go from verse 13. And they, who's they? That's the religious um, rulers. We can read about them in chapter 11, chief priests, scribes and elders. They, They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. What are they trying to do? They're trying to get Jesus to say the wrong thing on record publicly in the crowd so they can have him arrested, they can deal with him, get rid of him. So who gets sent to him? Well, these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who are they? Well, they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. See, on one hand, we've got, um, on the right, uh, we've got the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like the religious conservatives of the day. They're they're the custodians to to morality. Uh, They're the ones that accused Jesus of being a drunk because he turned water into wine at a party. They're the ones that hated that Jesus was hanging out with the poor, with the marginalized, with the foreigners. They're the ones that wanted to make Israel great again. And on the other side, you had the Herodians. Now, they were the worldly people that uh, didn't really care too much about these traditions. In fact, they had sided with Herod. That's where you get the name Herodian. And Herod, there's more than one Herod in the Bible, but the Herods were the, uh, the sort of local kings that, that, that the Romans had established to look after um, Israel, look after the Judean people. And uh, the Herodians, they were quite happy to abandon, abandon the, the traditions of the Pharisees in order for them to have lives of, of comfort, in order for them to have lives of prosperity. They were more willing to compromise and very pro-Rome. So you've got these two groups, right? The, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they come together, sort of like you know, having... Palmer or Bob Catter or Pauline Hanson come together with the Greens, right? And, and work together. Can you imagine them agreeing on anything? Well, these guys agree on something. And what's that? To take down Jesus. And so they come to him, verse 14. They said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. What are they doing here? They're, they're buttering him up. Uh, they're, they're trying to sweet talk him, you know, like trying to, like a honey, honey pot catching a fly. They're just trying to seduce him into getting him to say the right thing. But there's an incredible irony of actually what they say, because what they say is actually true. Jesus is the one that doesn't care about anyone's opinion. Jesus is the one that isn't swayed by appearances, but ultimately serves God. Jesus is prepared to say, what is politically incorrect in the time. He's prepared to call a spade a spade. He's prepared to call out sin of religious hypocrisy. He's prepared to do things that ultimately lead to his death. 
But keep reading. What's the trap? Well, they ask this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, this isn't just a general question, should you pay tax? This is talking about a particular tax. The commentators uh, agree on this, that it's, it's talking about a poll tax, a head tax, a tax that the Romans imposed on foreigners for the privilege of being part of the empire of Rome. And so Israel, uh, the Jews, they, they had to pay this tax uh, per capita for each, each head in the household, um, a denarius, which is like a day's wages, um, just to be part of the Roman Empire. And for, for many of the, especially those on the right, the Pharisees, this would have been seen as blasphemy. Uh, if you're with us uh, for our Rebuild series, we're seeing that God's purposes are about having a people, a nation, uh, living with Him. And, and we see the nation of Israel. Uh, it gets rebuilt in Jerusalem, uh, and things are going well for a while. And yet, fast forward a few hundred years, now things are bad again. There's been uh, empires that, that have come since uh, the Greeks. Now the Romans have, have invaded. Uh, and what happens? Well, God's people are not living in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And so um, here's this threat of this guy saying, you need to pay tax to me. You need to give me money. And so there's a trap that's being set up. They're trying to box Jesus into a corner by giving him a dilemma. Two options, right? Um, should we pay tax? Should we pay this particular poll tax or not? Now, what's happened 27 years before, important um, to understand a bit of history, there's a guy called Judas of Galilee. That's different to Judas Iscariot, um, who betrayed Jesus. But this guy Judas had actually revolted against this tax before. Uh, about 27 years before, like Jesus, he had cleansed the temple. Uh, he'd got written stuff in the temple. He wanted to start a revolution against Rome. He was part of uh, this um, kind of extreme right party called the Zealots uh, that really wanted to uh, have a go at anything that was invading nationalistic Israel. And so for Jesus, um, he was seen by many as like a zealot, as a revolutionary. And so the guys on the left, the, the, um, the Herodians, they were the ones that trying to get him to say on record, all right, he's going to rebel against Rome. We can kill him. We can be a whistleblower and we can send him up the chain and have him killed. On the other hand, though, uh, the Pharisees, they were, they were trying to get him to say, well, yes, we should pay tax. Because if, they, if he did say it, what it means is that they're conceding that actually we need to bow down to Caesar. And that was just more ammo, on the, more ammo, more fuel on the fire to get him arrested and killed. And so Jesus asked, yes or no? What does he do? Well, Jesus often doesn't answer things in a straightforward way. He does something remarkable and takes the question on a whole new level. He refuses to play this game of political simplicity. You know, when we face complex issues, uh, like many of them that you will see... So often it's not a straightforward, yes, no, black and white answer. Complex problems require complex solutions. It's far more than just saying left or right. It's far more than just saying we need to be on the right side of history for this one. What does Jesus do? Well, verse 15, he, he goes to the heart. He says, or it says, but knowing their hypocrisy, understanding where they're coming from, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. And let me 
Look at it. He knows the game. He knows what's going on. He knows their motive. It's not a real question. And so he says, give me a coin. Who here, um, you know, this is kind of going back in ancient history. Who here remembers coins? Who remember coins? Yeah, a few of you, a few of you are old enough to remember coins. Remember we used to kind of go and, and pay for things with, with coins? You remember that? Um, he, he gets a coin and he says, who's in, he says, someone bring me a coin. And he says, whose inscription is this? Whose likeness and inscription is that? And they say, Caesar's. Now coins, a 50 cent piece. This has got Queen Elizabeth. She's still kicking on. Um, she's our head of state. Uh, she's on the, our coin. But who's on the coins back then? It's Caesar. And it would have looked something like that. Um, if you can read that, if you, if you can read your Latin, you might be able to make out what it's saying. It says on one side, Pontiff Maxim. This is Tiberius, who was the, the Roman emperor of the time. Pontiff Maxim. Pontiff, you might have heard that word before. Priest. High priest, maximum priest. Um, that, that's on one side. That's what um, Caesar was described as. He was the high priest of Rome, of the Roman Empire. And on the other side, it says, son of the divine, Augustus. Augustus was his dad, who was seen to be a god. High priest on one side, son of God on the other side. Can you see why this question of paying head tax, poll tax, was a little bit problematic to the religious Jews, that we're going to bow down to the high priest, the son of God, Caesar. Jesus used this coin far more as a gimmick, as a prop, but he used it to show us the contrast between two kingdoms. See, Caesar has images of his face circulating across the Roman Empire, saying that he's the son of God and the high priest, whereas Jesus, he's the one worthy of those titles. He is the true Son of God sent from heaven to establish His kingdom, to establish the kingdom of God. He's also the true high priest who interceded on behalf of the people. That's what priests did. He was the one who laid down His life. He was the perfect sacrifice dying on the cross. These coins, they were owned by Caesar, who really owned the whole empire on one level. Jesus, notice, He didn't even have a coin on Him. He had to borrow a coin. He was homeless. He borrowed a buck from the crowd. But still, Jesus hadn't answered the question. He just set up the scenario, the contrast in kingdoms. And Jesus said to them, verse 17, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Render, literally, give back what you're entitled to. Give back what you owe, that word means to the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. And the crowd, they, they marvel at him. Wow. Drats, we didn't get him this time. So what's going on here? What's Jesus saying? Well, give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. What are the things that are God's? Well, we've seen already, as we've read back in Genesis 1, uh, that we... Humans, we're the image bearers of God. We're the ones that are made in his image. The coins, they've got the image of Caesar, but we are the, the image of God. It's as though we're sort of like God's coins with his face on it, kind of scattered across the world. We're the thing that God most values. Jesus is saying, sure, you can, you can give to Caesar what, what, what's due to him, what, he, what, what you owe him. He's not arguing for... A revolt. He's not arguing for extreme 
civil disobedience at that point. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 13 that God has established um, government on earth that we should submit to, that God is in control over every square inch of grass on the world, where every bit of the public square God is in control of. You know, God is even in control of government, even questionable government like Caesar. He didn't ever do everything that we'd agree with, whether it be Caesar in Rome or Roma Street, you know, the police. God is in control over every human institution. We're going to be looking a bit more about this uh, next week as we look at freedom of religion. But Jonathan Lehman, he says this, that God has given the power of the sword to governments and the power of the keys to churches. And he intends for them to work separately, but cooperatively towards the greater end of worship. Government should employ the sword in order to protect life, enable the cultural mandate, that's God's plan in Genesis 1, and provide a platform for the work of the church. They are guardians of this present age. Churches should exercise the keys of the kingdom in order to testify to King Jesus, his message, his people. They are witnesses of the age to come. Church and state, what's the relationship? We'll look a bit more next week. But Jesus says here that we can submit to Caesar on one level. We can give to him what's his, but give to God something far more valuable, yourself, your worship, your whole life. Jesus here is not trying to start a political revolution. He's starting a whole different revolution. He says that his kingdom is not of this world. It's of the age to come. He's established an eternal kingdom. The first words of Jesus, as recorded in this biography, in Mark 1.15, says this, that Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Literally, the good news. He comes into the world with an announcement, like a trumpet blasting, I'm here. Here's some good news. You can turn back and have forgiveness. Church, this is news for us as well, that we can be part of his family. We can be part of his people. Maybe this morning uh, you're struggling with something. You're struggling with your sense of identity. Which group do I belong with? Where's my, my friendship circle? Where's my tribe? You know, we're doing this left and right thing. I'm not even sure like, where I fit kind of along this thing. How do I belong? How do I fit in? Friends, here's some good news for you. You, if you trust in Jesus, are accepted onto Team Jesus. He loves you and welcomes you with open arms. You don't have to you know, subscribe to a set of moral choices. You don't have to be an at activist. You don't have to disengage. You don't have to do like any of these things. You don't have to become left or become right. You just have to come to Jesus. He loves you. He welcomes you. He died for you. So we've seen God's plans for the world, that he sits above every age. We've seen how Jesus engages politically in our age. But finally, let's look at a few practical principles Practical principles for us, as particularly over the next few weeks, but things that we should think about regardless of any issue that comes up. Firstly, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. You know, it's easy to get distracted. Um, there's some, you know, pretty spicy topics coming up, important topics. But these aren't the gospel. 
As Zach said this morning, um, and as if you've been to City on a Hill before, hopefully you've heard that our vision, our prayer is to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Ultimately, we want people to come and know him and have a relationship with him, not become left or become right or subscribe to a certain political ideas. The most important commandment that Jesus says in the Bible, he summarizes the Old Testament. He says the most important thing is to love God and love others. Church, let's do that. And in that order. You know, over this series, there might be times where you want to hide. You might want to not want to turn up that week. Uh, you might want to miss gospel community or be a little bit silent on things and retreat. You might want to not be, be ashamed of, of, of what God says on this topic amongst your friends at work. You might want to retreat. But you might also be on the other side and maybe you just can't wait to have your voice heard. Maybe there's something you're so passionate about it, you might actually, people might actually think and maybe how they, they see you on social media, how they interact. People might actually think you care more about one of these things than you do about Jesus. Friends, let's be people that are committed to knowing Jesus. You know, there's people in this room that will disagree with each other on some of these things. There's people in your gospel community group that will disagree with you, have a slightly different perspective. Maybe even something that might surprise you. Friends, let's not bulldoze people. Let's not be like, what? You believe that? And you call yourself a Christian? Let's not assume the worst in people. Let's not expect everyone to be on board with your political agenda. And there might be people that don't articulate. There might be people that don't speak up. Let's create space for people. Let's offer people an extra measure of grace and kindness, especially over these coming months. God has been so gracious and kind to you. Yeah, Let's uh, in turn uh, respond in grace and kindness to each other. Secondly, uh, knowing Jesus should change our politics. Knowing Jesus should change our politics. If you haven't changed any of your political convictions, if you haven't changed any of your beliefs, or maybe even about some of these topics since you've become a Christian, maybe you don't really know Jesus. Maybe you don't really know Jesus. Maybe you haven't really let his word change you. You can't be a follower of Jesus. You can't know Jesus and stay hardline, super conservative on every single issue. The Bible doesn't allow you to do that. God doesn't allow you to do that. Maybe you need some nuance. Maybe you need some grace and some compassion for your neighbor. Maybe you need to even get to know your neighbor. But nor can we be full-on left-leaning on everything. Nor can we be trusting in humanity or in governments to get to solve our problems. The world, it's messed up. The Bible makes that clear. But Jesus also says that the world will pass. That there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, where he is making everything new. Where God will dwell with his people. Some of you might be thinking, okay, great. I'm glad I'm not an extreme left or right. I'm an enlightened centrist. And I'm going to stand in the middle. I'm a moderate. You know, there's these wackos on the other side. Maybe they're even sitting next to me right now. But you know what? I'm in the middle. That's where I need to be. No. The middle is not where you need to be. The middle is not where you need to be. If you're a moderate, maybe you actually need to become more radical about certain things. 
The gospel should, uh, should change our heart to actually care deeply and we should be able to see how God's word clashes with our culture. Maybe you need to be caring more about what God cares about. Let's put the Bible above our comfort, above our safety net. And so I hope um, that we're all going to be offended on some level during this series. Maybe we already have this morning. Um, that's good. That was you know, part of my plan. Um, but regardless of where you sit, what should our church look like over this series? And what should our church look like into the future as we engage the world? Well, here's a few options. Here's a few pictures. Maybe we could be like a bomb shelter, you know, hiding from the world, creating a safe haven, a refuge, being apolitical, not having to speak up on certain things because we can have this safety net. Or maybe we can be in a glass house, you know, throwing stones on the world, critiquing, judging the world for their depraved moral decisions. Or maybe we can be like a mirror, just reflecting what's going on out there, agreeing with whatever's popular, sticking to what's comfortable, what's relevant. We want to be a place that's welcoming so that people don't feel challenged, that they can just be comfortable and accepted wherever they are, but they, don't, they never call to anything greater, never call to repent, and sin is not talked about. Friends, hopefully you can see all those three options are not where we want to be. And yet, if I'm honest with myself, I have drifted into all of those three options. I've drifted into wanting to hide, wanting to retreat when I should have spoken up. I've, I've definitely got on my high horse and had a go at culture. And at times I've reflected sinfully what culture is doing. We're not a bomb shelter. We're not a glass house. We're not a mirror. What are we then? Well, hopefully you know the name of our church. We are a city on a hill. We are to be a city within a city. Like Jesus being the light to the world, we're to be a little light reflecting his big light. Church, we can't do this alone. You can't be a city by yourself. We need a community. We need to have a thick, rich, deep community of love that loves each other so much that we'll be gracious, patient, forbearing and forgiving and realize that everyone in this room are sinners just like you. Realizing that we ourselves fall short in so many ways. We need to be prepared to ask for forgiveness of each other, even if it feels uncomfortable or awkward. But also a community that loves each other so much that we're not just going to tolerate and be content with our sin. Let's be the people of God that Jesus described in John 13 that says, The world will know that you're the Christians by your love for one another. Wouldn't that be amazing? If people just said, wow, you guys really love each other. In fact, there was someone, uh, there was someone on camp that um, said that they, uh, they're not a follower of Jesus, and yet they felt so welcomed. They, they put that in their feedback form. I was so encouraged by what God did amongst you on camp. Praise God. Keep going. But friends, let's love God first. He's made us in His image. He's made humans in His image. Let's love God Let's love each other and let's be that city on a hill that God has called us to do. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, 
Thank you so much for your word. And thank you that you speak to us and you sit above culture and have a plan and purpose for the world. And yet we're sorry for so many things. We're sorry for the times in which we have made our own political kingdom here on earth. We're sorry for the ways in which we've sat above what your word says, the ways in which we've bulldozed people, the way in which we've intentionally or even unintentionally hurt others and made it about our own glory rather than yours. Lord, please help us to be a city on a hill, not just with our words, not just with a slogan, but with our lives. I pray that we would look drastically different to the world, uh, not so that we stand out like a sore thumb for that sake, but so that we can give you glory so that people would see our good deeds and praise you as the source of love and truth and light. And we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.